And welcome back to another episode of Going for Two, presented by our friends at Home Field Apparel. I am your host, the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, Matt Brown. I am joined here by my colleague and co-host, Brian Fisher. Uh, how are you holding up today This as we're at this uh, in the doldrums here of late January? Uh, doing a little bit better than yourself in, in those single-digit temperatures that uh, you yeah. got there in Chicago. Uh, I'm sure we can always lament uh, the, the arrival of February and the winter weather that it brings. But uh, doing well was, was quite handy around the house this this weekend. Got some good football in from the yeah. AFC and NFC championship games. So it's uh, it, it was a nice little weekend. That's uh, I the, the what I've been doing to get around the horrible weather is I, I finally bought my tickets to Brazil a couple of days ago. And whenever I feel like the vitamin D kind of plummeting, I just fire up Duolingo, do a little bit of Portuguese, remind myself, hey, in like six weeks. I'm not going to be on a beach, but I'm going to be somewhere a lot warmer and sunnier. I'll send you some some WhatsApps of me eating like mango. I might mango just pop down there with you, you know. Yeah, sure. It's, 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 I'll just, just jot down there. It's fine. It's, it's not that expensive of a ticket. It's, you know, if you go after Carnival, it's, you, you I mean, I mean, it might be a little bit farther from, from where you are because you can't get direct, but it's it's not so bad. Um, are, you, are you just, just to... to Labor the point a little bit. Are, yeah. are you in Sao Paulo? Do, do you do other places in Brazil, or is that just kind of the, the focus for you? Uh, well, my my family all lives in Sao Paulo. My sister lives there. Uh, most of my cousins live either in the city or in the surrounding towns. Like my my mother and grandmother were, are from a. Uh, my mom is from Sao Paulo City. Like my grandma is from this little town called Pitacaya, a little bit to the east, I think. I think this trip, or so I'm only going to be there for about a week. I'm just going to stay there, but. I'm probably going to go back over the summer with my family. And like, I haven't been to Rio yet. I think that'd be fun. I've been to a couple of the cities farther South. I have not done anything. Amazon. I don't think, I don't think that's for me. I don't have that dog in me. I don't, I don't. I, I, I can totally understand. I mean, is, is there a ton to do be, beyond just visiting family there? I'm, I'm kind of curious because you always hear about Rio when everybody mentions Brazil, they, they always kind of immediately go Rio, Copacabana, you know, Americana, like that sort of thing. Like, is that kind of the focus for, for people? But what, what do they get to do in, in Sao Paulo? What, what, do you, what do you get to do, right? So Sao Paulo is enormous. It is significantly bigger, bigger than New York City. So you have to think that like, okay, anything you could do in New York, you you're, you're gonna be, you're gonna be able to do here only the the weather is better and everyone's beautiful. Um, if you want beaches, they're not far. If you want to go you do nature exploring, you can do that. But if you want art, if you want elite Brazilian soccer, if you want uh, cultural stuff associated with like you know the University of São Paulo is like Brazil's equivalent of like Yale. Um, so you 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 have you have a lot a lot of that stuff. But if you just want to go and and drink cheap beer and eat banjo keju and hang out in the sunshine, you, you can do that too. Like I, I haven't done a lot of high culture kind of stuff. Cause it's usually like either hanging out with family or like going to play soccer without shoes against the like neighborhood seven-year-olds getting like put into a garbage can. Um, so this is going to be, I, I, I think a, 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 a more expansive trip. I, I I'm hoping to go see a, an actual soccer game for the first time. Trying oh, to set I'm, up. Yeah, I'm jealous because I'm seeing it. It's transfer deadline day right around the corner. Maybe by the time uh, you're listening to this episode in, in the soccer world, you know that's where all the big moves are, are being made. So you're seeing all these links to clubs in in, in uh, Brazil. So I'm always like, all right, well, where on the map is that, and can I go see a game there? Yeah, I, I mean, most of the, I mean, most of them are going to be. It's the same thing. Like, like half the EPL teams are in like the same two cities. Uh, there's I don't know. There's not a whole lot of like Series A Brazil teams in Manaus. Or Belém, which, if you don't know, like that would be in the jungle, you know, part part of the country. They're they're mostly in the you know in and around the the three big population centers. 
Um, but it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be fun. I mean, it'd be fun, especially fun, I think, for somebody who's into, inter, into international soccer because the very best players, despite Brazil caring very deeply about soccer, do not tend to stay domestically in that league. They go to Europe, um, often to Portugal, and then from Portugal to, to somewhere else if, uh, if, if, if they're good. So uh, maybe some of the people I end up seeing will end up uh, playing when you're watching. But that's that's not that's not until mid March, um, so we I, I I will be writing about that. I'm going to try to watch part of the NCAA tournament in Brazil. I'm gonna I'm, I'm trying to, to to set up some interviews with like professors who study like Brazilian sports management and get a translator because my Portuguese is not good enough to have an academic conversation about media rights or anything. But that's 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 all in the future. I'm excited about that in the future. We can talk about. The here and now, because honestly, a lot of this really, I think, I think speaks to the fact that we are part of a very interdisciplinary multi-platform company where we're trying to do a bunch of different things. Sometimes those things mean Matt goes to Brazil uh, and, you know, spends time with family and and tries to stop cosplaying as a Brazilian, but also to try and and learn things to advance studying American college athletics through a lens of, uh, of, of South American sport. Sometimes that means doing shows like this, right? Uh, I, as sometimes that means going to conferences. Sometimes that means writing extensively or doing interviews. Uh, I, I'd like to think that we pushed this in a new direction earlier this week. Uh, Brian, did you get a chance to play Athletic Director Simulator 3000 uh, yet? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I, I did not dive uh, too, too deeply, just uh, given the uh, busyness that, that I had uh, to kind of start the week here. But uh, I did play around with it uh, a little bit earlier, and uh, it does kind of have that, uh, I don't know if you want to say organ traily type of feel, uh, minus the uh, 16 yeah, not, graphics. But, not yet, uh, yeah. Yes, we'll, we'll get there though. That, that's the whole point of the whole point of it, right? Though, but I, I feel like it, it's a fun simulation in terms of kind of getting the, the broad picture over some of the decisions that a, a lot of our AD colleagues have to make. Yeah, I, I I like to think that I am capable of being a serious professional reporter. I own jackets and ties. You can go into Collegiate Sports Connect. Like you could you can watch me sit down with the conference commissioner and have a high level policy-oriented, engaging conversation. I have that tool in my toolbox. But I came into this business through the back door, and so I fully understand that it's in my blood and I cannot ever fully extinguish it. I am a shit poster at heart, uh, which is what I think this project is. If you, if you haven't if you haven't seen Athletic Director Simulator 3000, um, uh, well, I, we can throw in a link in the show notes. It was published on Extra Points on Monday um, January 30th. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a literal choose your own adventure simulation game that I wrote in Python. You know, I, I would say this would be about the programming skill level of maybe a senior in high school, somebody who's taken one CS 101 class, right? This is not extremely complicated code, but it gives you an opportunity to face a couple of different situations that an AD might make. And you can, there's a, a various policy prescriptions. And what I think is the most realistic thing, is that there's no guarantee that making the right responsible choice gives you a positive outcome. They're all randomized. They're randomized weighted in certain ways. So I can tell you, you have an opportunity to hire a football coach. You are more likely to be successful if that football coach was a previously successful FCS coach than hiring Houston Nutt, which is one of the options, or uh, whoever your boosters tell you to hire. But those two things can be successful and, and potentially extremely successful and hiring uh, the guy that looks really good on paper that you did a, a, a deeply thoughtful hiring process. That person could still go four and eight. 
And in fact, every decision you make carries a 1.5% chance of triggering an NCAA investigation, which then means you get fired for cause. So I'm honestly pretty excited about the feedback. We got over a thousand people played this on day one. And uh, people were, were, were texting me their high scores, including a couple of Division One athletic directors. Obviously, I have to I have to rejigger the math, um, but I'm not a developer. So I'm going to be spending a little bit of time this week trying to add a couple of extra features, maybe some other questions. What I'd really like to do is add graphics and like not PlayStation 5 graphics or even Super Nintendo graphics. Like I'm not really interested in spending time doing like animation. I'm thinking like you did you have a DOS computer growing up? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. Just because of my dad's work, you know, we, we had one of the earlier, all, all the early kind of editions of uh, computers and the internet and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it definitely played a, a lot of DOS games. You know, I was, I was about to compliment you on your Python skills. You know, it's like, I feel like anytime I sit down with like my Raspberry Pi or, or doing some tinkering around the house or whatever, I'm like, man, I, I'm not even close to, uh, to what you're doing with some of these games that you put together here. It's, it's, well, it's, it's baby steps. One of, one of our readers, and I think, said this with 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 deep compliments it's like this is the most cs 101 thing i've ever seen and that it combines deep enthusiasm with gigantic inexperience because like I, I don't think i threaded everything in the correct functions it's probably inefficient code but he's like it's cool that's how you that's how you're supposed to learn and um i'm not good at it but you know every time someone loses their job in our business people on the internet yell at you to learn to code and so i, I figured like well might as well someday. Like you, know, you, know, you never know what's going to happen in the future. So maybe serving as well as a, as a law degree at this point. You know, you need tracks <laughs> at this point, and you know, learn to code or or get the law degree. And I yeah. feel like for, for a lot of uh, either our current compatriots or uh, former compatriots, that seems to be the uh, the track that everybody looks at. I think that was. We actually checked this at one time when I when I was working at SB Nation, and I want to say over ten percent of the college people that ran college football sites had passed the bar. At some point, and we're we're blogging. So so that, that's that, you know, we're we're digging into DOS was what I was going for. Like I think in a perfect world, that kind of five and a half inch floppy aesthetic where the graphics are just like colored text blocks, eight bit sound. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I spent a non trivial amount of time over the weekend trying to find a way to turn college fight song MP3s into eight bit like beeps. Like I found one to do general MIDI, but that felt more Super Nintendo than, than this kind of aesthetic. I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm sure by, by speaking this into existence, uh, eventually somebody will say, like, actually, you need to do X, Y, or Z. So as if I didn't have enough other things on my plate, software development is is kind of one of them. And, and listen, like the, the game is pretty clearly, I don't want to say the whole thing's a joke, but like there are definitely joke parts of it. I know this is you know, I, I have an open on the window here. You hire Houston Nut. The most likely scenario is your team goes three and nine. Your message board boosters learn how to use FOIA, and you're at, you lose like four fifths of your athletic department budget. One of the choices is how many subscriptions to Extra Points should you buy? Um, which, if I was being serious, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't use that naked of self promotion. But you know, you've played Football Manager, or at least you have played Football Manager. Most of the people listening to this played a ton of the recruiting mode on EA Sports College Football. Like I, the the video game that I played the most like uh, is NBA 2K. And I probably spent half of that time just in the franchise mode uh, where I'm, you know, doing salary cap stuff rather than actually playing the game because I'm broken inside. And, and maybe as I learn, we all learn together and we turn this into something that's more than just a one-off joke post, right? 
that well, would I mean, be speaking of learning. I mean, when, when you kind of go through a lot of those scenarios, were, were there things besides Houston nut uh, that you keep referencing and, and popped up in, in one of my answers? Like, was there something that you, you kind of continually went back and said, you know what, I, I got to include this as, as an aspect of, of this game? Uh, there were, I was trying to think of the best way to do this. And I didn't include it in this draft. And I think, you know, we're, we're recording here on a Monday. I'm probably going to release another, like a, another update by the end of this week. One of the things I, I wish that I, I, that I think would make a great question would be what happened with Cal. That's what, what like a decade ago, right? When they were needing to update, like do stadium upgrades. And there were protesters who were sitting in the trees, I think around the stadium, right? Which is like a very stereotypical Berkeley thing, but this could have happened in some other places. What do you do? Or some kind of callback to some of these kind of ridiculous things, right? And I don't know exactly how to like code what the best answer would be in that situation because all of it seems like an exercise in absurdity. But but that that that's sort of the thinking here, right? Like the, the immediate goal was how can I keep people engaged? How can I convey the point that there are no right answers in this business and make people laugh in something that fits my CS skill background, i.e., I've done four weeks of Coursera kind of thing that gave us this. Are there ways to make this more complicated or more realistic? I hope so. And and I, it's funny. I, I don't mind sharing this on the air, right? Like when I when I published this, our boss texted me about it, and I was thinking, like, is he going to be mad at me for tinkering again, or is he going to be mad at me, you know, kind of veering off another tangent? And he's like, what would it take for us to make this a real game? Which means that uh, I might need to do some some other tinkering. Which I, honestly, I think might be a decent segue into maybe a bigger thing that we should talk about here with our audience. Um, I'm not saying that we're making a big change because I'm pivoting to becoming a computer developer because that's that's not what's happening here. But in case you're unaware, I want to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit about kind of how all like our company's organized. So so Brian and I work together for a larger uh, you know entity that we colloquially call D1 Ticker. My core part of this business is to write extra points. Brian manages a lot of the Collegiate Sports Connect videos. We do this podcast. We do uh, we 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 the, our company produces uh, D1, D2, D3, NAIA tickers. I run D1 Classroom. Uh, we do a lot of traveling. There's and there's like seven or eight different spokes to this entire operation. And Brian and I have been working together for a little over a year, and we're already doing things within that operation that are different than what we thought we'd be doing when we started, and we're, we're shifting things around. As you may have read, um, this is a challenging time to be in the media business, and that means you have to make maybe some more aggressive changes. And we've seen this with publishers. My former employer just did this. Uh, uh, Washington Post just made some shifts. There, there, this is, this is going to continue happening over the coming weeks. I say all this to say, they're not laying us off. Like we're not closing extra points. We're not closing collegiate sports connect. We're not shifting things, but we do have to be cognizant of our time and what fits in with our business. And here, and here I think is the reality. We're doing this show for, what are we at? Like 155 episodes? 100, uh, slightly, slightly under 150. Yeah. A, a, yeah, a lot. We've been doing this for, for over a year. And while it has grown and it has been successful and it has done things that we're, we're really proud of and we like doing it, it's also a significant time investment, particularly for Brian, because while I know a little bit about coding, I know substantially less about video and audio editing, and Brian has to do the lion's share for that. So I'm sharing all of this with all of you here uh, to, so you can understand the why of what I'm about to tell you. 
And that is, we are going to sunset going for two as it exists right now. We're not going to do a 45 minute macro football focus, but macro industry conversation once or twice a week in, in this format anymore. And, and the, the biggest reason for that is just because we are we have to focus on a bunch of other things and this doesn't line up perfectly well with everything else here that we do. I do I do want to say we're not closing the door on doing audio storytelling in the future. Um, and, and, and in fact, there's in the, in the show notes on extra points, there's going to be like a little Google form. If you want to fill it out, if there's things that you'd like to, that you would like to hear in the future from us, whether that's Brian individually, me individually together for future audio, whether you have thoughts about frequency or anything, we have some ideas. We're interested in hearing from you as well. People who are listen to and are engaged with this show, but I would say you're not going to hear some, you're not going to see a new episode in your phones for several weeks while we land some other projects, while I spend some time in South America, while we look at figuring out how we monetize these efforts, how they fit in with everything. And then we can sit back and say, now we've, we've, we've had some better time to think, here's how we can do this in a more sustainable way that, that you're going to be interested in. That covered the, cover the, the important parts there? I think so. And I think it's just important to uh, reiterate that, uh, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere. Uh, you know, don't don't delete the feed or anything. We'll, yeah, don't, we'll, please, yeah, please don't delete the feed. We'll, we'll have some more potential uh, episodes down the road. But in terms of like the, the format and, and what we kind of discussed on, on a weekly basis, I, I think that that itself is, is going to be revamped and, and rebooted and rechanged a, a little bit. We might uh, tweak some of the titles and some of the graphics and that sort of thing as well moving forward. But uh, this is not an end. It's uh, kind of 2.0 version. If, if you, yeah. you know, I, I like to always kind of kind of frame it in, in that uh, respect. And uh, in order to do that, uh, number one, we do have to take care of a couple of other projects that are taking up the, the vast majority of our time that we want to kind of get, get out get out the door first. Uh, this is kind of a, a good period to do so. I, I know I always tend to like vacations in, in kind of the early parts of February. Number one, uh, you know, college basketball, and although it's spinning up and, and some, some great action over the over the weekend, um, you know, it's not quite hitting that stride like it does uh, there in March. And so uh, it's just a little bit of a, a time to where we can kind of kind of land the plane on, on some other projects and then, then uh, kind of really focus and, and drill down have some meetings in terms of the future of this but a lot of it is going to be down to to you the the, the listener in terms of providing some feedback what, what do you guys like to listen to um you know we've had uh, a number of people uh, whether it's at nacta whether it's at the ncaa convention whether it's where we're out at games or anything like that say there are listeners we always appreciate you guys uh whether you're listening on apple spotify youtube whatever it might be um and we just kind of want to hear from, from you as well in terms of what uh, what you think is working with the show what do you think is, is not and uh, hopefully we'll take all those feedbacks digest them and uh kind of kind of come up with a 2.0 version here for, for going for two yeah, 2.0 is a good way of putting it, right? Or, or this is the end of one season, and now we're taking a season break, and we are going to meet with our studio bosses about whether we will be renewed and in what capacity. If we have to do a pilot for a different thing, I could I could theoretically see a world where going for two relaunches as a less frequent spiritual cousin of the dead letter series that split zone duo does where there are like little mini audio documentaries or, or deep dives. I could see it where it's, it doubles down on being more industry focused and, and not talking as, as, as broad or macro or sports specific as it has been. I can see it being much shorter, but more frequent. And, but, and, and so some, but some of this will depend on 
what did you guys have to share? And so, yeah, please, uh, yeah. especially on the, on the, on the frequency and, and how, how long, you know, I know uh, some of you mentioned, you know, when, when you take the, the dog out for a walk uh, and, and listening to our episodes, you know, that seems to be a very frequent time or you're on the commute uh, in terms of listening to podcasts. So, you know, if you're like, Hey, I, I only need a, a 30 minute uh, kind of digest of, of what's going on in college athletics. I've, or if you're like, Hey, you know what? I love uh, hearing you guys. If you guys go 45 minutes or an hour, I love if you have guest uh, guest suggestions, uh, we're always open for that as well. So any, anything on that front, uh, you know, please uh, please follow the show notes and uh, uh, let us know because that that's going to inform our thinking. We, we already have some some ideas and some concepts that we're we're going to explore. But uh, you know, the, the best way to kind of relaunch this thing is is with the listener feedback that are already part of our core audience, and that's kind of what uh, what we want to do. One way that we were internally discussing about what a new extra points, I mean, bleh, the extra points is staying the same, a new going for two might look like would be to make it less of a conversation between Brian and I and to make it much more interview or expert focused, maybe even on things that are not a thousand percent tied to the news cycle. And so for the back end of this particular episode, I think we wanted to experiment with that a little bit. Um, this is, this is obviously a couple of days old now, but it's, I've been thinking about it, about the best way to tackle it, thinking about the Ed Reed hiring and then I don't know if we can call it a firing because he wasn't actually formally hired. The end of the Ed Reed era at Bethune-Cookman. And the side conversations about not just Bethune or Ed specifically, but about what this means for HBCU athletics, whether uh, Ed had a point about some HBCUs having a broken mentality, who can say that kind of thing, uh, and, and how and when. And I... You know, I've read a lot of books and I know intellectually some of those issues, but I will be the first person to tell you I, surprise, am not an HBCU athletics expert. And this is the kind of thing where context and subcontext matter so much that it felt like we really should talk to an expert. So, so earlier, uh, I reached out and I uh, to, uh, reached out to Professor Derek White. He's at the University of Kentucky. He wrote a truly excellent book a few years ago called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, which is a history of Florida A&M football. It's a, it's a mini biography of, of, of their former head coach, Jake Gaither. But there's a lot in there about the civil rights era and the heyday of HBCU athletics generally. Uh, Dr. White writes extensively about uh, African-American history in relation to sport. Um, And I wanted to talk to him about what sort of similarities he saw or sees between not just what's happening at Bethune, but uh, perhaps Grambling or or Jackson State or Tennessee State and these uh, a, a run of trying to hire NFL celebrity Hall of Fame kind of coaches to maybe the heyday of HBCU athletics and also maybe some of the cultural push and pull about to what extent should we embrace commercialism? To what extent should we embrace trying to be like PWIs or the SEC versus maintaining a a different identity? Obviously not the same conversation, but not an entirely dissimilar one that's happened before. So I wanted to talk to him and get his insights and, and what maybe a educated listener can take from those from that history to these uh, issues today. So uh, we're happy to, to 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 bring that in here and share that full context and audio uh, with you right now. Dr. White, thanks again for taking some time here to chat with me. I'm I'm wondering if maybe we we can we can start with this. One of the one of the themes that I got from reading your book that I don't think I really appreciated, particularly within the case of, of Florida AM, 
are uh, was a, a, a kind of generational push and pull of 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 uh, of maybe some some newer supporters or students who might have been frustrated with uh, Coach Gaither's maybe hesitancy to embrace political struggle or hesitancy to do uh, to, to push the, the department in a different in a different direction versus. Uh, and maybe people that came up with that school or played there or, or had a, a very different mindset. And I'm wondering if maybe you could tell me a little bit about how or if there are similar generational struggles with HBCU football happening right now with, with, with where these institutions want to be. I, I read your passages as, oh, there, there might be some similarities here, but I'm sure you, you would have much more context. Yeah, I mean, I think Coach Gaither is of a particular generation, right? He's born at the nearly the beginning of the 20th century and comes of age uh, in the mid 20th century and and takes over at Florida A and M as head coach in 1945. And I think that that makes a big difference, right? That he's uh, a, a man who is uh, a football coach first and foremost, first and foremost, and he is also very, you know, grew up with. Jim Crow. He, you know, he's born in Kentucky and went to school in Knoxville and worked in North Carolina yeah. and Virginia before moving to Florida A&M. And I think that that history and that reality that every black person, especially in the South, grew up with uh, in that generation understands how quickly, you know, how hard they could push for racial change. Right. And I think the civil rights movement uh, that really begins in the mid 1950s uh, in Florida A&M in particular with the Tallahassee bus boycott and then eventually in the sit in movements in the beginning of the 1960s, ultimately involving it to black power and kind of the mid to late 1960s kind of catches uh, that generation in, in many ways just kind of off guard about how quickly things uh, change. And so Gaither, like any like most public school, black HBC, public HBCU administrators, they had navigated their existence by kind of cooperating and working and pushing kind of gently with the state legislature or the governor or particular politicians so that they could get the kind of funding uh, that they needed to stay open, yeah, uh, and to and and to complete the kind of mission of higher education at a historically black college. Um, and so I think that there's some of that. And so by the time you get to like the mid 1960s, there's this complete push, at least at 4 A&M, uh, a complete push for. Uh, rapid change about the nature of desegregation. And I think Gaither's, I, I talk a lot about this in the book, is that I really try to take this honestly, that there was a lot of these whispers that that Gaither was an Uncle Tom, which is like, you know, blasphemy sure. uh, in Black communities. Um, but Gaither just had moved in a particular kind of fashion that he had built this, I mean, there's this kind of like ego. He built this football program that was year in and year out the most dominant program in HBCU sports for approximately you know 15 or 20 years um and then at the same time he also understood because you know as students i, I completely get this as now that as i'm a faculty member students have uh you know they're they're 19 or 20 right and so yeah. their understanding of the world is like through the lens of 19 and 20 year olds and they have not always seen the harsher edges and i think that there was a belief that among administrators that there was a fear that they would close the whole institution down and I think that there was this balance that they were always trying to strive for. And so when you look at this kind of contemporary landscape, I think one of the things you get to see is um, there is a tremendous push among HBCU supporters to to relive those kind of what I call the golden age, right? That that generation between, you know, 45 and 75 that produced so much great talent of uh, at, out of HBCUs. 
especially as they look at the kind of money that you know big time institutions are producing uh with black talent and so there's this there's a dream in some ways right rooted in both nostalgia and also kind of reality that like if we could get those players at our institutions we can now reap the benefits of um black excellence for our institutions and at the same time that there's this push beginning really with Dion, I think most popularly, of, of having this kind of celebrity, famous black coach be the person, the influencer, the influencer to really encourage these top athletes to come to or consider HBCUs. Uh, and so when you put that in the context of George Floyd from you know two and a half summers ago, um, that black colleges have been in a bit of a renaissance anyways, because so many of their application numbers have been going up. And so I think that there's a lot of this kind of push and pull is happening in this contemporary moment. And I think the, the biggest, I think the biggest thing that I see, at least from my end is one that there is a incomplete understanding about the nature of college football. I'll be honest, like a lot of sure. HBCU fans are like, we could do this. We should just go to division one. And I'm like, back of the envelope money doesn't add up. Right. Like you don't even have to have a sports management degree to just no, know. We can, right? like, we can look and say like Eastern shore, you have a budget of $18 million. This is what Alabama spends on protein. Like that's, it, yeah. it's, not, it's not the same thing. Right. And, yeah. and at the same time, it's just also, I mean, some of it's little things like, so, some of it's that. And then on the on the on the national side, I think there's not enough distinction and understanding of the kind of differences between HBCU. So Jackson State has a set of advantages and disadvantages that Bethune Cookman doesn't have. Right. Being a public institution means that their tuition is considerably lower, um, that they have a, they play in a very large stadium that is owned by the city. So they get a there's a way that those finances work to their benefit. Yeah. Whereas Bethune Cookman as a private institution all the students are paying the same rate. So if you deciding, you know, when you're paying 65 scholarships, that's the same number for every one of those students. And so I think some of those kind of internal details, and then I'll, I'll stop, I'll add this last piece is that, you know, I think that that, that is a legitimate desire. Um, but I also think that there's a, there's a real, you know, we need to have a real honest understanding about what's truly possible and what is truly wanted out of the kind of black college football experience. And I think that there's a lot of tension between holding on to the traditions of the SWAC or the MEAC uh, and at the same time wanting to be part of a much more larger national conversation. Um, I, 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 I want to talk more about that exact question. And, uh, but before I do, do you feel like there are any similarities whatsoever between a modern HBCU movement to try to make the head coach as a larger than life celebrity figure and perhaps the role that somebody like Eddie Robinson or, or Jake Gaither held in the mid 1960s for those institutions where clearly that was a, an earned celebrity based on, on success at that institution. I wouldn't say that Eddie and Dion have similar personalities, mm -mm. but do you see any similarities between the, 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 the role that that person might, might exist on that campus? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think at every college campus, right. Football or basketball coach as, as King is, <laughs> is a pretty norm, sure. uh, a, you know, a, a big, a pretty big desire. And so I think what black colleges also struggle with is a kind of 
uh, nostalgia, right? Like in many ways, they're like, you know, former programs trying to recreate that the old glory that they once had, right? And so, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a power five level, this is the same, you know, these are the same issues that plague Nebraska, right? How do we yeah. get the next Tom Osborne? Someone who's going to stay here for like 30 years and win us multiple national titles. Uh, and I think the black colleges are also, you know, they want to do that. They want that as well. But the challenge for them is that in as as salaries have skyrocketed for college coaches across the kind of landscape, black colleges are very hamstrung with just kind of the legacies of segregation and limited budgets. And so they're never going to be able to pay Dion what he would have been able to make at a lot of kind of comparable institutions. Right. Um, yeah. And that the resources uh, around the program and around the institution were always going to be uh, you know, facing a certain, a certain kind of struggle vis-a-vis uh, -vis the kind of funding sources that they have. Um, digging, I mean, you're right, right? And, and one of the things that I want to make sure that my audience who might study or work at PWIs should know is, of course, like that funding disparity is not just because of mismanagement, that's institutional <laughs> segregation from, and, and from multiple states over, over a period of decades. Which I, I think led to uh, a quote here that I have seen my friends who are involved in the HBCU community debate bitterly over over the last two weeks. And you know, part of I think what made the Ed Reed situation at Bethune so explosive is a couple of days before he was ter terminated, if I re recall correctly, he says in a, in a live stream that many HBCUs are suffering from broken mentalities, mm -hmm. and I have heard Jackson State fans say. That's right. Our expectations are too low. We're, we're, we're not prepared to do the things, not just to chase a P5 school, but, but to do, but, you know, we're capable of doing something greater. And then I heard a lot of other people take very deep personal offense to this idea. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if maybe you can kind of flesh this out a little bit about why this would have struck a chord with so many individuals. I mean, you know, it's it, it's like you know, black communities in general, right, are airing dirty laundry. Like we don't need other black people to air our dirty laundry living in America, right? Like, and so black colleges and black communities in general already face with a certain kind of uh, expectations and um, assumptions about them being kind of, uh, you know, broken, right? I mean, this is a national discourse, right? About, sure. you know, when, 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 Presidents are talking about the crime on in Chicago. They're not talking about. No, they're, not they're not talking, talking about, about around. They're not talking about Northwestern, right? Like they're no. talking about particular parts of Chicago, right? That are yeah. predominantly black and brown communities. Um, and so I think that 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 what what Ed Reed I think tapped into was um, you know a third rail, and I think it's just not a nearly a deeper appreciation of the kind of nuances about how you have these kinds of conversations. That's one. Two, I mean, Bethune-Cookman is it has been in financial trouble, right? Like this yeah. is not, uh, this is not anything new, right? That they had a uh, president and a CFO sign a deal for a new dorm that was, I want this is almost maybe a decade ago, that left the school tremendously in debt that they had to refinance most recent over the last couple of years, right? Um, and so that you know that threatened their accreditation. Um, but like, you know, I think the college, like, I think if you're the football coach at a large 
uh, well-funded institution, whether it's at the Division three level or Division one level, you don't really have to think about the nature of higher education. But if you're at a small, underfunded college, black, white, or other, you really have to understand, it, you know, higher ed. And right now, just in the nature of higher ed, small colleges with no endowment, small private colleges with no endowment are all struggling. They're all threatening to close. They're all facing endowment pressures. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, that Bethune-Cookman in some ways is not any different, except for that it has this legacy of discrimination, underfunding, uh, built into the system. And so what it's built on is a, is a legacy of Black folks, starting with Mary McLeod Bethune, trying to provide, provide educational opportunities for folks who have been uh, tremendously discriminated. And I just didn't feel like, I felt like the reason folks reacted in a kind of way to Ed Reed's um, statements was that there wasn't really a deep appreciation for that history. Um, and that it felt like it was like he walked into Bethune-Cookman and, and was wondering why it wasn't Miami. And I felt like that was um, a mistake on his part. That's not to say that there aren't legitimate criticisms to be had of any college, but let alone sure. black colleges, right? But to do that in public, having been on the job for, you know, at, not officially on the job, <laughs> apparently, no, like, like, days, a two, yeah. like a few days, yeah. right? Like it was, it just felt like it was neither the time nor place. Um, and I felt like there was a way to handle. Uh, that and so I think there's a lot of conversation sure. on both sides. Like we, you know, black colleges need to have accountability, and this is what this is about. But there's also um, a kind of bigger question and conversation to be had about the the assumptions about you know uh, the depravity of black folks, and that Ed Reed was in many ways playing into that, um, using his celebrity to reinforce a kind of negative stereotype about black people, but also about black colleges. And black colleges are very you know obviously defensive about. Uh, that that history as well. No, I, I as as an outsider, I, I grew up in Ohio where there's one HBCU and, and you know, that wasn't a place that the people really knew about a whole lot statewide. And I when I lived in Louisiana and I spent time in places where they had those institutions in the 90s and in the early 2000s, even from other black people, even black educators, a lot. I heard a lot of talking about those kind of schools only within the context of what they were deficient in or what mm -hmm. they lacked, right? You go to Southern if you did not get into LSU or Southern mm -hmm. is not is not the, a peer of, of X, Y, or Z. And then very recently, and I, I to the, my understanding, not just about George Floyd, but also uh, with, within other police brutality and an, an influx in corporate interest in these institutions, how that dialogue has changed. But correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I can I can definitely understand why an administrator or somebody from one of those schools would then get frustrated with somebody who did not go to one of those places coming in thinking that they're a savior because they spent time at Ohio State or Miami and missing the whole last 15, 20 years. Do, do, I, have, do I have that about right? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. I think that there is a, an assumption. I think this is one of the byproducts of, of integration, right, that that black spaces were seen as deficient. This is one of the kind of arguments I make and I try to make at the end of the book, right? That, yeah. that there's this kind of complicated and I think delicate conversation to be had about that the that white spaces are somehow better than uh, black spaces, right? And that was kind of the logics, you know, the kind of unspoken logics of desegregation, right? That, yeah. that these white institutions were not just uh, had better 
material resources, they were just better all the way around. And so one of the distinctions I make in the book is that there is a really important distinction to be made between material resource advantages of predominantly white institutions and human resource advantages of predominantly white institutions, right? And so they were often at a deficit, right? And so we see this now, right? It's like, how do you recreate the culture of black people at these predominantly white institutions and football is full of this, right? Like, sure. You know, it's like, you know, it's like every predominantly white institution is like, we got a barbershop that we're trying to build inside our locker room. Right. Um, uh, you know, Dion's talking about all the new way we're going to create culture in Colorado, and I'm like, that ain't going to happen. Like, that ain't that you can't re- you can't recreate that I've, at yeah. Jackson State, right? I've I've been to Boulder, and and that's part of <laughs> that's part of what kind of surprised me a little bit. Like, if I was to think of the most PWI town, yes, you know, Provo would be number one, but Boulder is probably not that far behind. You should build a barbershop there in your yes. locker room because you might not be able to find one. Which, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, or you got to go to Denver, certain parts of Denver, which is like, you know, 35, 40 minutes away from campus, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's this, uh, there is this thing that I've, I've really kind of seen since I started working on this book that's really kind of exacerbated since the book's come out, in, especially in the Southeast, is that predominantly white institutions have tried to either through diversity and inclusion initiatives or through kind of this, 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 I think difficult conversations around black culture that try to make black folks feel comfortable, but then the power relationships at those institutions remain very much the same. And so you see, for instance, the joke I always have is that LSU has been playing neck like they are Southern. Right. And I think that's like absolutely hostile. Right. Like and I think folks who grew up in the band and around black college bands are are like legitimately like this is them ripping off. Right. It is it is the new coffee shop in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, right? Like it is a thing, like, you <laughs> the know. Gen- the gentrified neck, right? Right, sure, right. Like okay. it's gentrifying these ideas that are very much part and parcel, right? And um, and and so they're saying like, look, we now got these cultural resources. We've got all these material resources. And now you should just come here as opposed, you can get all the things that you can get at Southern that you can get at LSU, except for like black faculty and staff. Like, let me just be like, <laughs> Um, and so, like <laughs> those conversations are difficult, and it puts a, an athletic program, which is there, basically separate from the university, but trying to convince young black men and women to come join their institution to raise this money. That we've got enough of those things to make you feel comfortable without actually ever interrogating the relationship. And this is, I think, this is particularly pernicious in the southeast, obviously, because you know, southern and LSU are right across, you know, right across yeah, the street from each other. Uh, FAMU and Florida State are right across the street from one another. Like that relationship, that distance is so small. Like FAMU and Florida State, because Florida State has been growing and FAMU, they're like 100 yards apart now. They used to be like two miles apart. Now they're 100 yards apart. And that distance is very much part of is is more than just a hundred yards. It's a distance about like, you know, the haves and the have nots, right? The way that the state has funded um Florida AM at, you know, Florida State at the expense of Florida AM in many cases. If if I'm remembering correctly, and I, I don't have the book like right on my desk at the moment, but wasn't wasn't this didn't 
Eddie was making a pretty similar argument near, near you know, it, when he was coach when, after, after integration began happening, right? Like you can go here and there might have a nicer locker room, but we, we produce more black doctors than they do. And, yeah. and you're going to have a, a, a different social life. You're going to, you're going to have, you're going to be more supported as a human being, even if they, if they have these other things, but this is still part of the argument that HBCUs are making to students generally now, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I mean, in many ways, it's the same argument, right? Like, and I think that, you know, there's an unspoken thing that's happened. I think that like, uh, you know, scholars like, like myself and others who are kind of in tune to the HBCU side of it is that part of the recruiting ploy at LSU and part of the recruiting ploy at FAM and some other institutions was like, guess what? Like, you could come to Florida State, but FAMU, you can have, you can go to the parties at FAMU, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you know, Bowden like, used to take people to campus if I remember, right? right? Like right. introduce you to the fraternity houses. Exactly, right? And so that was part of the way that they pitched kind of black students to come to these institutions, right? That we've got all the material resources and the cultural resources that you need are not going to be at Florida State, but they're going to be like, you know, a hundred, you know, two miles away, right? And yeah. Um, and I think that that is that subtlety is 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 an important distinction to acknowledge as part and parcel of the ways in which um, uh, predominantly white institutions, especially in the southeast, have rapidly, you know, dramatically changed their rosters, even from the late 1980s. Right. In terms of the racial compositions. Um, and I think that that is, um, you know, that has to be acknowledged. And I think that, you know you know, alumni and uh, scholars and fans of HBCUs are fully aware of this relationship that is in many ways a losing, an unbalanced relationship in which they don't get nearly as much as they give to some of these institutions, especially the ones in the same backyard. So I, I guess maybe this is an impossible question, but I, maybe I, I could finish with this because I, I, I've seen Bomani argue that this is a losing game, right? The, give, given the financial headwinds and structural headwinds that you're facing, Jackson State should not even be in the business of trying to, to emulate anything at the P5 level. You got to focus on other on, on dorms, right? And and clearly other schools like like a Tennessee State or a Grambling, and I know Morgan was potentially thinking about bringing in Ray Lewis, and, and these are conversations happening about maybe what we the game we want to be doing is trying to emulate Jackson State, and, and how can we catch that lightning in a bottle, and how can we elevate our athletic brand to reach people in a different way given the money and given how this whole industry works right now like if you were if Bethune called you up or if if you know uh, South Carolina you know South Carolina State called you up and said what what should we be doing what would you recommend to a an HBCU president right now uh, what, what how to do what, where you should go with the coach I mean the coaches uh that's a challenge right like I actually think that you know I you know, other commenters and reporters in college football have also noted that, like, you know, young black coaches feel like they can't take a job at HBCUs because they feel like it's a dead end, that they yeah. will be they have to they feel like what it will do is means that they will only work in HBCU football. Right. And and if they have aspirations or dreams of being in the NFL or coaching at a power five, they see this as a one way. So, if so, you know, so the coaches yeah. who get into that market are often. Um, either on the way down as having started someplace else, or yeah. they are um, um, they that's something that they personally believe in and they want to spend their life and career working with these young men and women at HBCUs. Uh, and so I think there's a really kind of a, 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 an important part of that. I think that the conversation for any coach, new coach coming in is understanding 
the uh, infrastructure and history and realities at HBCUs. And I think that why, like, I think North Carolina Central's uh, head football coach uh, is a great example, who's an alum of Central, who understood the the market and understood what the potential was and how to maximize those potentials. I think the Central success this year, I think North Carolina A&T success over the last few years in multiple sports has been, I think that's kind of the roadmap forward, right? the notion that you're going to just capture some big name personality that played in the NFL, but had spent zero time around an HBCU is uh run is a high risk. Right. And I think that what Jackson state did was they capital. I mean, Dion has the biggest personality, um, but they also yeah. were the only, you know, I think that one of the things that, <laughs> that was, was disappointing to Jackson state folks and folks like myself who study and follow HBCU uh, football is that there was not even acknowledgement on his part that he, of, of being grateful for the opportunity because no one was hiring Dion as their head coach except for Jackson State, right? Like it was not. We we know. remember what happened the last time Dion was head football coach somewhere, and it led right. to like state investigations. It was a huge mess, right? And so yeah. the fact that 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 like that he was like you know he was constantly, especially at the end, and complain about all the things Jackson State didn't do for him. Um. And none of it was like they gave you the job, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, none of it was that, you know, you made the most of the opportunity, but they gave you a job where you had very little head coaching experience and very little successful head coaching experience, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that there was something there. And I think that one of the frustrations, this is one of the frustrations I had about Dion was that that he also represented the ideal kind of person to bring success to HBCUs. He was... You know, he did not need, you know, everybody, you know, I would like nine million dollars a year to be a college football coach, too. Right. But, you know, here's a person who had already on Aflac commercials, already had a kind of media presence, a commercial presence that allowed for him to offset some of his salary that he could have had the opportunity to build. And, And that Jackson State, every institution required him to, you know, Long-term success is going to require you to stay, you know, a decade at least to build not only just in terms of the immediacy of, you know, getting Travis Hunter and other five-star and high-quality players, but how do you sustain that over time? And I think that one of the things that was really interesting is that, and we started to see it, that that when coaches are extremely successful – you know, college football is competitive. And so other programs are like, all right, now we should go out and try to get players that we didn't think were going to answer our calls before. Right. Or players are now more responsive to Grambling making a call because they like, you know, should I go to Louisiana Monroe or should I go to Grambling? Well, that's Grambling is just as good. Right. Like they're seeing yeah. this as an opportunity in a way that they didn't see it before. Right. And so I think that there's there was this kind of, you know, I hate to use the phrase of rising tide lifts all boats, but I think that the competitive nature of college football was going to all the other programs that were were really competitive were going to kind of step up and meet this challenge. And I think that there was going to be a really kind of aggressive. And we saw some of that this year um, uh, in, in the first kind of signing day and whatnot. I think Florida A&M and Grambling, they have fantastic classes that yeah. in many ways have really pointed them on a kind of upwards trajectory. And so, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, those are the challenges I think that lay uh, <laughs> that lay for any program. I mean, at Bethune-Cookman, Bethune-Cookman has a particular set of issues uh, about being a small private HBCU 
that is trying to operate at the division one level. I'll say this. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book that I think is important to note is that like that if we look at before 1945 and after 1945, before 1945, black college football, even amid segregation, was dominated by private institutions. Howard, Tuskegee, other programs of that nature were fairly dominant. Morris Brown were dominant in the HBCU landscape. And then after World War II, when we see the growth of the size of rosters, right, we yeah. see, you know, uh, the end of kind of uh, Ironman football, at least briefly, we see the roster sizes go from, you know, 29, 30 to 60, 70, 80. By the 60, late 60s, you're talking about over 100. Black Private black colleges could not even afford to keep up in that period, right? And so we see that there's already a tremendous kind of, we can see this landscape. And so, Bethune-Cookman is is really faced with those kinds of challenges of being kind of one of the handful of, of, of private institutions um, and HBCUs that that try to play, you know, FCS football. And I think that's really that's kind of, you know, when we talk about the nuance of the conversation, that's a part of the nuance that, that folks are not actually having. You know, that that's a great point. And now that I think about it, I mean, what what would be even considered the the flagship private HBC? Is it is it Hampton at this point? Like, because I know I know Howard's been struggling for as long as I think I've been writing covering this. Yeah, story. I mean, Howard and Hampton have you know they have particular kind of advantages, right? That their their enrollment numbers are always pretty stable. Um, they you know Howard has the most healthy endowment, but also the largest reluctance uh, to support uh, college athletics. I mean, something that's deep in its history. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Hampton has had this kind of ebb and flow depending on um, where they are, but Hampton, you know, Hampton has unique challenges, right? I mean, Hampton's challenges are not, you know, it's private staff, not only it's private status. It's also that Norfolk state's nearby in terms yeah. of HBCU, but now old dominions, a program you're talking about Virginia, the rise of Virginia tech. Some of that can be attributed to all of us. All of it's attributed to their recruiting of, you know, that the Newport news Hampton sure. area. I, right. I, I've had, <laughs> I've had Olympic sport coaches there at, at Hampton tell me that like they, they, they have had, they now have to go, way more international than they would have ever expected just to fill roster spots because mm -hmm. then, because now they're like if we have a really good black athlete who's who's from newport news they're going to go to odu or mm -hmm. or, 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 liberty, or, or liberty or even liberty yeah yeah well yeah they we we, we, they, we like their chances of coming back from liberty after they transfer from a year but like the as a high schooler that's a challenge right so it's like now, I mean, for like their tennis team, I want to say, which I know was like the first one to kind of recruit internationally. Like, I think it's all European kids. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's not what we wanted to do, but no, I mean, that's Virginia's. It's competitive, right? And it's and competitive. The, the the eastern part of North Carolina, which I know is pretty black, uh, as there's a lot of those folks moved to Charlotte, and so there's not there's not bodies there. That's, that's yeah, I mean, it, and I think that that's. You know, and this is a byproduct of success, right? Like yeah. that Virginia Tech success means that more teams are in that area nationally. Um, you know, so each level, you know, one of the arguments I make um, when I give talks about Florida A&M, they're like, well, what, you know, why do we not see Florida A&M at, you know, in terms of the late 1960s when we talk about desegregation? But Florida A&M's challenge has never been not just Florida State or Miami or Florida. It's It's been Central Florida and South Florida and Florida Atlantic and Florida International. Like when you do those, add those four programs in, yeah. like, like, fam, you could even be successful in the late 90s. Um, far more successful because 
they were still getting a lot of that second tier kid that now ends up at those other institutions. Right. And so I think that like, when you look at the challenges about that, and that's why I think, you know, have, you know, the desire to have a celebrity gives black colleges a, uh, you know, a, a fighting chance to recruit those kids back to their institutions. And they believe that they have, they do, and they have something that they can sell beyond, you know, locker rooms and football, that they are selling a kind of cultural place that yeah. can, you know, that they can grow to love and be a part of in a way that you can't replicate at any PWI. Um, and so I think that there is there that's the that's the kind of give and take that I think administrators are trying to make ADs and presidents and boards. Um, and then, you know, there's, you know, Jackson States, I'm sure their application numbers were up. I think that they, you know, like yeah. they were uh, they were on. T- you know, there's a lot I'm, of the kind I'm of I'm other- sure that there was a fluty effect happening there, but that's not sustainable. And it's it's really hard to replicate. you right. It's mm. just just ask Eddie George. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this has been extremely helpful. The, Derek, is there anything that I haven't asked that you think that my audience, which is going to be mostly undergraduate studying sports management or people that work in this industry, is there anything I haven't asked that you think I should as I'm trying to kind of bridge these two things here together? No, I don't. I think that there is. I think that uh, the, your your listeners who are in sports management, I think they have to be not just about sports. They have to understand how, the kind of sure. broader landscape of higher education. Um, and, you know, these are challenges that HBCUs face, not only because of segregation, but because of size, right? I think that one of the things that gets lost in this conversation is that, like, A&T is the largest HBCU, and I think they have, like, 17 or 18,000 students, right? Like, um, and so, like, we're talking really small that, yeah. schools compared to even, you know, what we think of as the bottom of power five, right? Like, you yeah. know, um, they're, they're, they're basically comparable to kind of private school numbers of like Wake Forest or whatnot. Um, and that is a, a huge, huge kind of um, frame to help you understand the kind of challenges and headwinds that black colleges face on the athletic front. Um, that's, that is a great point. I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I, I don't think I'd fully, uh, appreciated how much of a struggle being a private institution would be as an HBCU. And this is, I, I'm a guy that's written a lot about the challenges of tuition dependent private schools and how the, the Presbyterians and the Siennas of the world are, are, are facing a crunch. Well, then of course you would expect that for, uh, for for a school a school like uh, like like BCU and um, Sienna and Sienna yeah. is not carrying football right <laughs> no exactly right they, you can have an athletic department of thirty five people you don't you don't need that kind of infrastructure. I mean they don't even have an on campus arena yeah. um, di- different everything um, thank you so much for this I, I really appreciate your time no thank you for having me um, before we wrap up here I do want to quickly shout out what the last time in this format in the foreseeable future our dear friends at homefieldapparel.com. The, the folks who make the most comfortable, the most unique, uh, I would dare say the most fashionable, officially licensed vintage collegiate athletic apparel. Uh, I'm in my, my office right now. It is cold, so I'm wearing my baby blue Marquette hoodie, um, which is covering up another home field shirt. I'm wearing a Northwestern uh, T-shirt here at the moment, one of the various designs where it looks like the cat uh, has picked up a recreational cocaine habit, uh, needed to 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 uh, to keep up with Kellogg Business School's arduous curriculum. Um, that's going to hurt my credential 
uh, requests at, at <laughs> for North and the Western in the future. Anyway, it's a, it's a delightful shirt, delightful hoodie. They have a bunch of other delightful uh, logos that are, are, are pulling from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, all the weirdo logos and prints that your sports information department forgot existed. Homefield found them. They put them on very soft shirts. They are in the, uh, in the process right now of uh, updating their collections across college athletics. Um, I'm not somebody who is predisposed to love Iowa athletics or Iowa stuff, but they have just refreshed that collection. It looks outstanding. Um, and there's a very good Utah one dropping this week as well. Um, I will be Iowa, Iowa state and Utah all this week. And that's a one week only thing too, as well. So yeah, you're jumping on, uh, jumping on any of that gear, whether you're a fan of those schools or not, uh, not only do you use the, use the promo code, but, uh, make sure you, you do it quickly because those, those things, not only will they sell out, uh, but uh, it is a very limited edition for all three of those schools. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's going to be anything just like laying around a warehouse in, in Indianapolis in the near future. So if you want to go grab some Utah Utes ski team, uh, shirts, or if you want to get a, a an Iowa Hawkeye in a leather helmet shirt with um, with like the, the 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 black ring T-shirt kind of style, which is which is very cool. Uh, you want to go to homefieldapparel.com. You want to use promo code extra points, which will knock off fifteen percent off of your order, um, and do that before February the third. Or they might not be there anymore. There'll be other cool stuff you could buy afterwards, but it might not be those specific things. If you're listening to this a little bit later, um, before we kind of close the book on this particular chapter of this show, let me let me you know just say here from the heart how much I appreciate your support. I know that we are, are a niche product in a niche marketplace that are that might be talking extensively about things which are not as appealing to the broad mass appeal of college athletics fans. And the fact that you have supported us for this long and helped keep this going is deeply appreciated. We love it when we go to things like NACTA or when we go to conventions, or when you do campus visits, and people aren't just reading our stuff every day, but they're listening to us and and, and helping us support the show. We are excited to hear more of your feedback about what you think worked, what you think didn't work, and what you would like. And we hope to be able to meet some of those needs in a different format that's more sustainable for us later this year. It's definitely not a goodbye forever, especially because I'm going to still be writing extra points Brian's still on Connect. We're still making a bunch of stuff every single day. We're just taking a little break on this as we figure out what to do moving forward. Uh, Brian, where can people find you and your stuff since they're not going to hear you in their podcast feeds every every couple of days in the near future? Well, yeah, it might not be every couple of days. We might have a few special episodes that we'll throw out there with uh, some some uh, tastes, uh, if you will, of to maybe some collegiate sports connect content uh, that we've been doing as well, especially from the NCAA convention where we talk with a whole host of people that you can get on collegiate sports connect, csconnect.live if you want to sign up for an account. It's completely free uh, on top of all the uh, job interviews that we do, all the uh, commissioners and, and industry folks. Uh, also a great way uh, if you're kind of starting out in the industry or uh, kind of looking for, for something in terms of a new career change, always a great way. Uh, to look on, on that front as well look on the D1 ticker you can find me on the artist formerly known as Twitter at Brian D Fisher B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R it's it's awful uh, now that uh, Mr. Musk has, has taken over I gotta say but uh, if, if you still want to 
I still I still post occasionally on there. Uh, you know, my Instagram's the, the same thing. If you want to follow me there, but uh, we'll we'll have some more special stuff uh, for you going forward. And uh, we we are not going away. It's just, just a, a temporary break, if you will, a little pause in the action. And I think we all need it for a little bit for our, our mental health and and mental sanity and uh, re- relaxing. But uh, excited for version 2.0 coming, uh, you know, right around the corner. That's that's right, everyone. Uh, you can of course find me at Matt Brown EP. Uh, I fully acknowledge that Twitter has gotten away a lot worse over the last two months, but my brain does not produce dopamine without chemical help, or uh, or so that means I end up still using this stupid site, even though I know um, technically and spiritually it's not a good place to spend my time. Uh, I'm still there a lot, and of course you can find uh, extra points at extrapointsmb.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We we will catch up with you again some way very soon.